We have a special treat today. Uh, in the area, they've had the annual gathering of Christian college presidents. Is that right? And so we have the distinct privilege of having the distinguished Brother Mike Williams, who's the president of Faulkner University. I have a great affection for Faulkner University because, as you know, uh, Seth, my son, is a Bible major there and plays on the football team. And uh, we've gotten to be acquainted a few times, and he's leading that great university in a great direction for the kingdom. And he requested to be able to share a little bit about school, the school and about their mission and about young people. And I notice our teens are filing in right now. So that's good. We want them to be able to hear this as well. So uh, you just take as much time as you need, brother. Um, people may leave at 15 till, but um, and as much time as you need. And if, if you run out of things to say, then I'll take over from there. But you don't feel pressure, okay? Well, it's a great, uh, great to be with you tonight, and I certainly won't take too much time out of your Bible class this morning, but it is really good to be here, and we are very blessed to have Seth with us. He, he spoke in chapel as a freshman, and I was sitting next to the dean of the College of Biblical Studies, and I said, he's a freshman? <laughs> and then, he's really good. Don't mess him up, you know, <laughs> but really good to, good to be here, and uh, privileged to, to be a part of this assembly today. I uh, wanted to just carve out a few minutes to hopefully just percolate your thinking. Um, after working for 35 years in higher education, one of the things that I'm pretty convinced of is that the choice of one who makes a decision on what happens after high school may be the most significant decision a person makes in their life as far as where they go to school. In fact, in my opinion, there's really only two decisions that outrank it as far as life-shaping implications. One's a decision to follow Jesus Christ, and the second is who you marry. And after that, you'll be hard-pressed to convince me that the decision that a young person makes as far as where they go to school, where they go, if they go, may be the most influential time in their lives. And it's not just Mike Williams' opinion. Most uh, behavioral scientists whether they're Christian in perspective or not, would say that the defining decade in someone's life is between the ages of 16 and 26. It's not the things that happen before age 16 aren't important, and it's not the things that happen after 26 are irrelevant. But during that 10-year period of time, you really make some life-shaping commitments. And that's why, for me, it's been a real joy to be a part of Christian education because we walk beside a lot of students during their defining decade and watch them really make some of those life-shaping commitments. Because it's true whether you go to Faulkner, you go to the University of Michigan, or you go to Harvard, it doesn't really matter. And it doesn't really matter how you were raised, what kind of church you went to growing up. When you get to your defining decade, what typically happens is you take everything you've been taught and you dump it out. You dump every single piece out on the floor. And then one by one, you pick it back up. And you say, I think this will go back in. And you look at other things, you say, I think that will stay out. I've been watching this happen over and over and over. And so the choice to go off to college is really a significant one because it doesn't matter where you go, you go through this process. 
One of the reasons why I'm very blessed uh, to work at Faulkner University is we watch students dump everything out on the carpet as well. But I work for an institution that really wants to help students look through at absolutely everything through a lens of faith. So that hopefully as they look and evaluate their life, they'll make a firm and solid commitment to Jesus Christ to be a part of his redemptive force in the world. Now, it's not a secret that we can take any 10 uh, people or kids who graduate uh, from high school from this church or any church in America and follow them off to college. And if they follow the national average, a year from now, seven of them won't be coming. Don't take that too bad because it's not just true of Churches of Christ, it's true of Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians, you name the religious tradition in America. We're all watching this generation walk away. If that doesn't rattle your cage, nothing will. And that's why I am deeply committed to working at a Christ-centered university because as we intersect with this emerging generation, I believe they've got tremendous horsepower. And we've got to find a way to connect with them in a way that impassions them to live their life for Jesus Christ and for them to really see themselves as a part of the kingdom. Uh, and so for us, that's why we're deeply committed to helping students work through that. For me, uh, our goal at Faulkner University is to help students not just graduate, walk the graduation stage and shake my hand, get a degree and move on. But we hope that they leave with a kazone. Can you say kazone? That's terrible. <laughs> All right. If you're going to come to freshman orientation at uh, Faulkner, you're going to have to learn to say the president's favorite word, kazone. That's better. All right. Kazone is a Hebrew term. It means vision. Bible says when people don't have vision, they perish. It's been my experience when uh, college students don't have a vision for their life, they die too. Craig Rochelle, I think, gives the best definition of Kazone. He says Kazone is this intersection. It's an intersection between what you love and what you hate. It's an intersection of taking what you're good at and where does it uh, intersect with something that's broken, something that bothers you, something that keeps you up at night. Is if you can find that intersection, that gives you a real vision for life. Now, of the 4,000 colleges in America, we all do a pretty good job of helping you find out what you like because we start off from day one and saying, what do you want to study? What do you want to major? What do you want to do with your life? What do you like? We all do a pretty good job of that. But at Faulkner, we're also trying to help students figure out what they dislike, what bothers them, what keeps them up at night. Because if we can help them figure out that, we think that they'll see their profession and their God-given horsepower to be a part of something redemptive. Now, one of the things that we've tried to do to help students find out is that we have adopted Davis Elementary. Davis Elementary is the worst performing school in, the, in Montgomery, Alabama. It's probably the, one of the worst performing schools in the state. And we tried to decide to walk along beside them. And quite frankly, when some of our students come back to campus after being a tutor or being a mentor over at Davis, I know that some of them wrestle with some of the things that they heard. That the 10-year-old little girl that said things to them at the cafeteria, that when she talked about her life experience, 
our students walk back to the campus scratching their heads. We're trying to be a powerful force because if we can figure out how we can help our students run towards brokenness, we think they'll have a kazone. I think kazone's also a good goal for the church is that we take the collective mass of this body and we figure out what we love, what we can do best, and we deploy into the community that we are the first responders. You know, when crisis happens, we all call 911 and the first responders run towards the crisis and everybody else runs away. Shouldn't the people of God be running towards brokenness of humanity? That's one thing that this generation probably has a whole lot better handle on than we do, is that they're walking away from church, which is a head scratcher, because they want to run towards brokenness. They just suddenly no longer view the church as being God's vehicle for the redemptive force to run towards it. So we're trying to empower them, trying to impassion them to see that they really can make a difference in the kingdom of God through the church and be a part of something redemptive. One of the things that we try to do also is just not tied to our little school, but we've drawn a circle, a five-mile circle around Davis Elementary. And in uh, our little community of Davis, if you have your taxes done, just like probably here in Michigan, it costs about $175 to $225 to have your taxes done. Well, in our little community of Davis, we found that some of the families are paying $400. Wonder why. You and I might look at the community around Davis and say, here's a community that needs help. But there's others that look at the community and say, we can take advantage of them. We'll do their taxes. We'll make them feel great about it. And we'll charge them $400 right off the top. And they won't know any better. And they'll thank us for doing it. So if you come to Faulkner University and study business, you know what you're going to do? You're going to do taxes for free. You're going to sit right across from a family and realize at the end of 20 minutes, you're going to have their taxes complete. And you're going to put $400 in their pocket that they didn't have. And you know what they're going to do? February 2nd, they're going to buy tires for their car. They're going to buy braces. To me, that's gazone. That's taking what students are already good at and what they really want to do with their lives anyway, and it's colliding with something that's broken, something that needs fixed, and they get a chance to run towards broken humanity. That shapes their life. We all actually had two English majors who signed up this past year <laughs> to help in the tax program because their sweet mates were business majors, and they said, can't we do that? <laughs> sure. You go through the federal tax course. This is not complicated tax returns. And uh, you can do it. And so we had two English majors actually have the experience. To me, that's the essence of a Faulkner education. It's taking the horsepower that God has given young men and women and trying to impassion them that they can be a part of God's redemptive force in the world. And they're meeting people. Ashley is a senior that graduated this past May, and when we had her over to our house to speak to some prospective students about her experience, she said, uh, I've really had a good experience at Faulkner. Been student government, been the club, 
been involved in all kinds of different activities on campus. But a 10-year-old girl at Davis Elementary probably had more influence on me than anything else. I think it was we impassion these students and they really start to get in, involved that they see that they really can't have a vision for life that extends way beyond a degree. They find their kazon and a kazon will fuel them for life. I'm thankful for a couple minutes of your time today. I hope as you um, intersect with the young men and women that sit on the back couple rows there as they are making some of the most important decisions of your life that you will pour wisdom into them and encourage them because this is one of those critical crossroads of life that uh, students need to choose wisely. And so, Carrie, thank you for having me today and blessed to be here. Have you ever had one of those moments when you're really glad you didn't open your mouth when you were tempted to? Because when he said, do you know what a cazone is? I was going to say, yeah, I love them. It's a pizza <laughs> folded inside out. It's like a stromboli. That's a calzone. That's right. So, so brother, you informed us. We thought you were talking about Upside down pizzas for us today. That was a good, what, what a good work y'all are doing there. And we appreciate you taking the time to come and share it with us today. And we appreciate Faulkner. We are studying different evidences for the Christian faith. And we started off with some scientific evidences. As I told you, I am not an expert in science. I studied basic math for college students. You didn't have to take algebra in my day. So I took one math course that was required. It was basic math for college students. I took one science course. It was biology. I made it through both of them, and I never looked back. So when we were talking about the science stuff, I was having to share some things from experts and trust their expertise. But my field, as you know, of course, is theology, but also philosophy. But primarily, my doctoral work was in history. And so now we're talking about historical Christian evidences, and we started in, last time, talking about the historical Jesus. There will be lots and lots of critics who try to point to Jesus being a mythical, made-up character by all of the New Testament writers, where they, according to their accusations, they go back and think that these writers took Old Testament prophecies and invented a personality to fit those. And therefore, they came up with Christ. Now, besides the fact that I don't know that anybody could invent Jesus Christ. I mean, when you look at his character, it's like no other man that's ever lived. When you look at his love and his passion and the way he framed the world, framed morality and goodness, it, no one's written like that. And I've read Socrates and I've read Aristotle and all the great thinkers of this world. And I can tell you, that no one has ever invented anything even similar. The gods that are invented by man are a lot like man. They are. Look at the Greek and Roman gods. Look at the Egyptian gods. Look at the Mesopotamian gods. Look at the Canaanite gods. They all are kind of like us. They're selfish. And they want to be served. 
And they want you to do exactly what they tell you, they tell you to. Or they're whimsically going to either punish or they're going to reward you. But it's still all about them. The concept of a God who would die for those who don't deserve it, who don't even want it. I just don't think that can be made up by man. So right there we have evidence. Now we've talked about this. When it comes to defending the truth of Christianity, we don't present proofs. God didn't give us proofs. And I know I've went over that every single week because I really want you to soak it in. Because when people ask you, well, prove to me your faith. So we just well stop talking about it because God doesn't want it to be proven. Because without faith, it is impossible to please God. And where there is proof, there is no faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. So we don't have proof. God can prove himself right now. You know what happens when God proves himself? Does it cause people to love him and have faith? Look at the Israelites. Two million or so of them left Egypt. And do you think they saw some proof? What kind of proof did they see? Well, they walked in between two Walls of water hundreds and hundreds of feet high on dry ground that was being held up by nothing but the power of God. They saw plagues that caused the world to be dark, blotted out the sun for days. They saw the mighty Nile River, the world's longest, one of the world's most prolific rivers in all the world. It turns to blood. All the water is transformed and then it's transformed back. I mean, they see so many magnificent things. Every time they need something to eat, they just wake up and go outside their tent. And there's bread and there's meat. If they need water, Moses strikes a rock. There's water. They didn't. No Israelite wondered if there was a God. And they still worshiped a golden calf. And they still said, well, wouldn't it be better if we went back to Egypt? Does proof produce faith? And love? No. So we don't have proof, but we do have evidence. And the difference is, is evidence makes it reasonable to have faith. Evidence are markers that point to a conclusion that cause us to say, indeed, that my faith is reasonable. My faith is valid. My faith makes sense. So that's what we're studying in this class is Christian evidences to build faith not to prove but to build what God desires in people which is faith which leads to real love you can believe in something or someone and not love them that would not be fulfilling of God's purpose so we talked last time as we started to build the case for this historical Jesus that we're going to dive into some pagan sources we talked about Africanus the quote of Thallus, and today we're moving on. I've got a few texts that we'll try to get to by the end of our hour. If I could have somebody take Hebrews 5, 7. Thank you, Mike. Uh, Acts 1, 1 through 2. Thank you. And John 1, 14. Last one, better get quick. Mario. Sorry, Mark. Just practice this week at home. Raising that hand. Getting it up there. All right. Mara Bar Serapion, 
The British Museum houses an ancient letter from a Syrian father named Mara Bar Serapian. Have you ever been to the, anybody been to the British Museum? Oh man, it is awesome. If you like history, if you don't, you'll be like Lenora. Do you have to read every plaque <laughs> at every exhibit? Yes. How often do we come to the British Museum? And the Louvre? That's even worse. But still, it's a magnificent place. Well, they hold this letter in the British Museum from Mara Bar Serapian to his son who was in prison. And in this letter, the father urges his son not to repeat man's mistakes. That's an age-old message of fathers to sons, is it not? I cannot tell you how many times I'm calling Alabama, having conversations, having the same conversation. You don't need to follow in the mistakes that I've made or that others have made. You need to make better choices, right? That's basically what he's saying. Make better choices. And in this letter, the father urges him not to repeat man's mistakes. He discusses Socrates, Faragus, and the wise king mentioned as follows. Now listen to what he says. This is not a believer. I mean, he's talking about Socrates as well and other Greek philosophers. And he says, listen to the wise king. This is an exact quote. What advantage did the Jews gain from executing their king? It was just after that that their kingdom was abolished. So we know the time period he's talking about, right? When was the kingdom of the Jews abolished? At 70 AD. I mean, Jerusalem's destroyed. The temple is, is not st one stone is left on another. It's wiped out all of their heritage, all of their history. If you were to talk to a Jewish person today, they'll still have some of the traditions of Judaism, but they don't really follow it very strictly because they really can't. Because to be a Jew, you have to know your real Jewish identity is tied to one of 12 what? Tribes. All those records were kept in the temple of Jerusalem and they're all gone. No, if, you, if somebody says, yes, I'm Jewish, ask them what tribe they are. Are you Benjamin, Judah? What are you? They won't, they can't tell you. I mean, it's like it wiped them out as a people. All their culture, all their heritage. Now, they've still tried to retain some of it. And this isn't a critique of that. It's simply trying to illustrate his accuracy and the time frame that he's trying to address. It was after that that their kingdom was abolished. Nor did the wise king die for good. He lived on in the teaching which he had given. So did Mara Barsarapian, did he believe that the disciples made up this personality called Jesus? Almost certainly not. He reminded his son, therefore it was known to him and his son and everybody else. That Yeshua of Nazareth was a real man. Tacitus. Cornelius Tacitus is often considered to be the greatest of all Roman historians. He was born about AD 52 to AD 54. And he wrote prolifically on Nero's reign. His comments on Nero blaming the great fire of Rome on the Christians... So he's not a fan of Christianity. In fact, he's a stark critic of this new faith. Yet he says this in his work, Jesus is referred to by this exact quote. Tacitus says, called Christians by the populace. Christus, 
from whom the name has its origins, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. So Tacitus, who was the premier Roman historian, this is the guy they taught in elite learning institutions. This is the guy, if he were alive today, he would be a premier professor at Harvard or Yale. He would be the editor of the National Journal of History. He was the world's greatest expert on history. And does he say that Christ Christus, as he calls him, is that a real man or is that a fiction? Well, the Romans believed he was real, without question. To Tacitus, this Christus was as real as the Roman procurator Pontius Pilate was. Just as real. Now let's shift to some Jewish sources. Now for the Jews, they perhaps had a more vested interest in denying the reality of Jesus even than the Romans. Because to the Romans, Jesus and Christianity was at first a curiosity and then it became a threat only because they thought Christians were, were a weird, off-the-wall, crazy cult. That was the Romans' perspective. Did you know that? They thought we were a crazy cult who practiced cannibalism. That was their biggest concern because they did not understand the Lord's Supper. So they're, in their mindset, we were eating the body and drinking the blood. So for Romans, I mean, there, there's lots of Roman writings about the cannibals, the Christians. And then they talked about love feasts and they thought that was some perverted thing. I mean, they really thought Christians were, they thought we were immoral. Isn't that funny? The Romans thought we were immoral. Strange perspectives. But to the Jews, Jesus was more than a curiosity or a threat because of their oddities. Jesus was a direct attack upon their interpretation of their own faith. Saul of Tarsus is evidence of that, is he not? I mean, what would cause a person to be so zealous in destroying that faith? Because Jesus claimed to be what you better not claim to be if you're not. He claimed to be the Messiah, God in the flesh. And Jesus is clear about it. I mean, how many times in the New Testament does he say, I'm the Son of Man, I'm the Son of God. I'm the one who was sent, the Messiah. To make that claim and not be that. And they'd had false messiahs before. And they dealt with them stringently. But here this quote false messiah from their perspective. This one takes hold. And I mean even though they crucify him. Or get the Romans to crucify him. This one I mean he has all sorts of followers. Who are still following him. It's a massive problem. So the Jews are even more invested in discrediting everything about Jesus. So you would think if anyone was going to accuse him of not being a real person, of being an invention of some Galilee fishermen, it would be them. But in the Talmud, and the Talmud is a body of religious writings which dealt with their law. It was sacred to the Jews. It was like their you know, commentary on the Bible. And it made up, it's made up by two parts, the Mishnah and the Jamaris. It's completed about 200 AD, and it holds many negative references 
to Yeshua of Nazareth, but of sufficient number to establish that without question, even though they can't stand him, they believe that he was indeed absolutely, unquestionably a real man. That he existed. And then we have Josephus. Josephus was one of the greatest historians of the Jewish people. Flavus Josephus' writings contain references to a number of New Testament people and events. Of most important, however, is this reference. And this is right out of the writings of Josephus, the Antiquities, volume 18, 3, verse 3. It says, And there arose about this time Jesus, a wise man. If indeed we should call him a man, and this is not a believer, Josephus was never a believer. He said, For he was a doer of marvelous deeds, a teacher of men who received the truth with pleasure. He won over many Jews and also many Greeks, and this man was the Messiah. Now, Josephus will never acknowledge him as the Josiah and his, and his Messiah. Josephus, Messiah, Josiah. I, I'm getting confused. As the Messiah in his personal life, but he does in his writing. And when Pilate had condemned him to the cross at the instigation of our own leaders, those who had loved him from the first did not cease. For he appeared to them on the third day alive again. As the prophets had predicted... And said many other wonderful things about him. And even now, the race of Christians, so named after him, has not yet died out. Josephus, not a believer, doesn't have a biased perspective. Writes in his histories about not just the reality of Jesus as a man, but his belief that all the things Jesus did actually happened. And then we segue into our study from the New Testament. And to be fair, one must give the same consideration to the books of the New Testament that he would give to any other work from the same period. What I'm saying is that the New Testament, we look at it as a religious document, but yet when you examine historical sources, you look to their authenticity based upon how they different copies agree with one another. And based upon whether they're approved and accepted by people at the time. Uh, we could take a modern day example. If 3,000 years from today, if this world is still here, and historians want to look at what was a valid news source, how are they going to determine whether it's... Well, I don't know that we have a lot of valid news sources. But how are they going to determine... Whether CNN or has anybody ever seen something called the Babylon Bee? I mean, it's a, it's a mockery, right? It just makes stuff up that's kind of sarcastic and crazy. But just look at, I mean, they present those articles like it's fact. So if you, an archaeologist, and I guess you wouldn't dig that up, you dig up hard drives. And maybe it'd be on those hard drives, right? So they dig up hard drives and they pull them up. How are they going to determine whether CNN is history or whether Babylon B is history. How are they going to do that? They cross-reference with other sources to see what was approved and accepted at the time. When you use that as the standard, 
the New Testament proves to be accurate, true history in even greater measure than any other history we have. Because the letters of the New Testament are referenced in so many other places in historical documents. And so when we look at the New Testament and we consider it as a history, five of the authors were eyewitnesses. They actually saw it. Three were with him throughout his ministry. They walked for three and a half years with Jesus every single day. And all of the writings show remarkable agreement with one another. The testimony of the New Testament is so strong a case for historical Christ that the following has been written by two of this past couple centuries most renowned historians. H.G. Wells wrote, Here was a man. This part of the tale simply could not have been invented. And that's found in his Outline of History, Volume 1, page 420. Will Durant, perhaps the foremost expert on that Roman period in modern times, wrote in his classic Caesar and Christ on page 557 that a few simple men could in one generation have invented so powerful and appealing of a personality so lofty of an ethic and so inspiring a vision of human brotherhood would be a miracle far more incredible than any recorded in the gospel record. And I'll tell you that to say that the apostles made it up to me is the biggest stretch that a skeptic can make because of this. I've recommended to you that you read Fox's book of martyrs, at least the first couple chapters, because it records so many martyrs from the first and second century and what they went through because of their faith. But the first section records what history tells us happened to the apostles themselves. And of the 12, you know, after Judas is replaced, of those 12 who go into all the world and preach the gospel as they've been charged, 11 died violent deaths. Only John escaped it on the Isle of Patmos and lived to a ripe old age. But 11 died violent deaths. But what's remarkable about it is they did not die together. History tells us that Peter was crucified at his request upside down in Rome. Another was run through with a halberd in India, what's today India, Another died in Ethiopia by the sword. Others were burnt at the stake in Syria and what used to be Babylon. Others were killed and stoned to death. I mean, in places like Alexandria, in Africa, all over the world. And here's the deal. What's the chances that 12 guys get together and say, let's make something up. And 11 of the 12, and the 12th would have too. 11 of the 12, isolated by themselves without any support in far corners of the world, when they're about to be put to death, 
don't say, if we just made it up. Are you willing to die for a lie? Now, people die for lies, but they die for lies they believe are true, right? I mean, in 9-11, those guys died because of a lie, but they believed it was true. People will die for a lie they believe is true, but will people die for a lie they made up? That would be more unbelievable than anything we read in the Bible. When we look in Scripture, when we look in Roman history, when we look in Jewish history, we see the same thing over and over and over. Jesus was a real man. And there is no argument that can be made by skeptics that can dismiss that reality. Without a doubt, Jesus was real. And from this platform, we may build the case that everything he said and did were also true. Hebrews 5, 7. So he's making an argument to Jesus being real and therefore he's transitioning to saying he's not just real, but the things he did were true. The things he said were true. Acts 1, 1 through 2. So he tells Theophilus, Luke does, in the beginning of Acts, he said, in my first letter, and what, what book was that? Luke. He said, in my first letter, I said everything that Jesus said and did. Now I'm going to build on that, and I'm going to show you what his people did and how they carried that message and how it transformed the world. And then John 1, verse 14. We have seen his glory. They make the claim, we're eyewitnesses of it. Of course they're willing to die for it. They lived it. They didn't just hear about it. They lived it. And there's no greater evidence than that, right, Leonard, than that of an eyewitness, than someone who actually saw it. Well, we do not have time to dive into the next one because we got three minutes. But we do have time if you're brief, for comments and questions. So, what do you got? Mike Williams is here. Don't embarrass me. <laughs> John Clark, it falls to you. I mean, you're a... Well, you mentioned the Jewish uh, portions of the writings that uh, were written by the And not say he wasn't real. Not say he was fictional. And they never do that. That's not found in any historical record. That's a modern idea. 2,000 years removed from the source. Seems like a problem.
Other comments, thoughts? Mike Williams is here. There we go. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Right. Islamic people, same thing. I think the reason that they don't believe he's the Messiah, you say for whatever reason, I think part of that is it totally changes their culture and history and, and practices. I mean, yeah. Well, I mean, they ignore them because, I mean, prophecy is rather cryptic sometimes. You know, even in Scripture, you can see there's different types of prophecy. There's prophecy that's pretty plain, but it also, there's prophecy that's double meaning. I mean, there's prophecy that God even uses to fulfill in time with certain, I mean, what if, I, I believe everyone has free will, so I believe that even Judas had free will. So what if, what if that prophecy about Judas wouldn't have come true because Judas exercised his free will well god could have used that prophecy to be fulfilled in another agent right so yeah that's a, they, they just say well that's all been misinterpreted and misunderstood in jesus and the messiah that one day comes if they still are conservative enough to believe that stuff to be literally true i mean there are jews who practice judaism and don't believe in god i mean that's it's a it's it's as much a part of their culture and a part of their heritage and identity as it is a part of a, as, as it is a religion in some ways. So that's not all of them, of course, but it's some. We're out of time. Love you. We'll talk more next week. <laughs>